If you were with us this summer, you know that we studied the entire Sermon on the Mount all summer long, and we ended two weeks ago with this simple picture where Jesus says, if you listen to my words and you do them, you'll be a wise builder, and you're building your house or your life on the foundation of the rock of truth of my word, and no trouble, no storm, no wind or wave will ever shake you. That's where we left off. And now we find ourselves in really an extension of the Sermon on the Mount in the book of James. So if you have a Bible, we are starting a series that will take us through the book of James all the way up into our Christmas season. And, and many, many commentators, theologians, look at the book of James as an enhancement of the Sermon on the Mount. The book of James is in, in many ways about how to become a Christian that's growing and maturing to be more like Christ. And how it encourages us to do that is through practical life application to take our faith and to put it into action. Or to take the Sermon on the Mount and make it something that you're living out with your life. So we've called this sermon series, uh, a study in the book of James, the gospel on the ground. When you hear the good news of God that he loves you apart from anything you've done and he's provided a way to be with you and to allow you to have life in his name, that's the gospel. And the book of James is going to help us take that from the sanctuary to the streets or from our head to our heart so that we actually live it out. And so that's what we're going to try to do throughout this series. And I can't think of a better first attempt at that then by listening how to live out the good news gospel that when you hear it and receive it will be covered with joy in your life in the midst of the most difficult times of your life. And that's what it says in James chapter 1. We're not going to go through the entire book this morning or the, even the entire first chapter, but we do in these first couple verses that we'll study, we're going to get kind of a preview of, of what will be unfolding before us. It says in James chapter 1 verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So early church history, James is, is, is writing these letters, common for the, for the church leaders to write these epistles to the, to the church. And he says very importantly that this is to those who are scattered if you read through the book of Acts about the first church, you know that it wasn't long before those who were saved faced persecution of their day. And oftentimes that persecution required them to leave where they were, to be in another place in, in God's sovereignty for their life, where the gospel would continue in, in a new context. And James says, to those of you who are scattered, imagine your life being scattered, uprooted, you've moved, you've changed, something has happened through persecution or trial to where your whole life gets turned upside down. And so out of the gate, in a letter that will be designed to bring Christian growth and maturity through Christian application of the gospel, he says, if you're scattered, listen to this, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Then he'll go on to say, if you lack wisdom, ask. An overview of the first couple sections of this chapter could be James encouraging the church to have a joyful perspective about everything. The gospel good news message is for everything at all times. Joyful perspective. And then he'll say, if you need wisdom, ask. He's going to give the example of what it looks like to have a faithful prayer life, no matter the circumstance. 
And then as the letter will unfold, he gives his readers a reminder that they do all of these things under the promise that the the reward of their life, the crown of their life, is eternal life. Anyone who loves God will be crowned with life. So there's in this a, 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 um, a outline that you could find the joyful perspective leading to a faithful prayer life, leading to a hopeful promise. And that's what we're going to start to unpack as we go through this in all of the ways that James will teach us that gospel on the ground application. But this morning we're going to look at this crazy, paradoxical, joyful in the midst of troubling times perspective. And anytime you talk about the perspective of your life, you really are talking about how you view what's happening. And James, for the purposes of our study this morning, is going to give us three views that we are supposed to have in our trials. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. One of the views that he's going to give us is the view of what we think, the perspective that forms in your mind. Then he says, when you face various trials, this is the view of what we actually see. Outside of our mind, the world coming at us, what is it, the perspective by which you see the world? And then finally, he will say, knowing this, and this will be the perspective of what you actually believe. This is an important distinction that James is going to tease out the rest of this study. What do you actually believe based off the way you live your life? So we're going to talk about the way we think, the way we see, and the way that we believe in times where we're totally tried, times that are totally testing. What does it mean to have a trial? I think the simplest answer that I received is anything that happens in your life of following God, following Jesus, listening and consuming the word and then trying to apply it, which makes you question everything. Anything that makes your faith seem like something that you're not so certain about or anything that makes your circumstances something that you don't really see through. Anything that makes you question what's happening in your life compared to or in contrast to the goodness of God. It's important that we figure this out because James says, when you go through trials, not if. This is one of those times as a preacher where I feel like I've got a lot of grace from the listening audience because sometimes you talk about topics where people are like, yeah, that doesn't really apply. I don't wrestle with that kind of doctrinal dispute. I don't really think about those theological terms. I'm a simpleton or I'm just really not interested. But when it comes to trials, everyone listens up. Because you've either just come out of a trial, and you're thinking back to last week, you're about to go through a trial, and you're looking at the horizon, or like many of us, you're in one right now. And as a pastor at a church, I can tell you that the stories we hear this morning as we pray for special needs families, and we thank God for his hand of faithfulness in times of emergency, Trials are so inevitable that they are what makes the church function. It's like why we come to worship and seek God in prayer and gather together to dissect the word is because we're wrestling with things we don't know what to do with. Just this week, as I was studying this passage of scripture, I counted all of the things and left some off the list that are just coming down the pipeline of our church. A woman who just had surgery for breast cancer, a family that just had to deal with the loss of a loved one, a young couple who is dealing with the loss of an expected child, a marriage on the brink. These are all things that throughout the week are happening here in our church. 
hopefully covered in prayer and wise counsel, but that's just the reality of walking in the world. There will be trouble. It's why Jesus says in John chapter 16, take heart. Don't be discouraged, but be ready because in this world you will have much trouble. Don't be surprised, but be ready. And where the trouble comes from, it's like pick your poison because we live in a world that is fallen so you are going to have trouble that just comes out you from the outside forces of the world that has turned its back against God. And you are now going against the flow of that towards God. And we live all around fallen people right now. You look around and it's like some of the trials and testing may stretch you because of the relationships that you had a, a, a different view on. And they turned out to be kind of hard and you didn't expect that. And then maybe the one that enhances that teaching on judgment in Matthew chapter 7, we live in fallen bodies. We live inside of our flesh that struggles to do what God calls us to do. And that's why Jesus says, before you judge others, you should probably take a look at your own heart. So we live in a fallen world, we live around fallen people, and we live through a fallen body. Trouble's going to be everywhere. So we're supposed to be ready for it. How? How we respond to trouble is what we're commanded to deal with, not necessarily how we navigate in or around it or through it. It's coming. The question is, how will you handle it? And that's what we're going to try to study this morning because what James is offering is a bit of a paradox. Most of us, when we are going through the testings of our faith, don't necessarily wake up and say, this is awesome. I absolutely love this. When you have the little tiny challenges throughout your day that are waiting for you unexpectedly. Your initial reaction usually isn't to worship and rejoice. It's usually to be annoyed and bitter. Just drive on the freeway or stand in line or looking for a parking spot at Costco this afternoon, and you'll realize that trials are not your flesh's favorite part of following Christ. And so the question that we have to unpack is, how can we have something we don't like become something that we rejoice in? The answer this morning is not to grit your teeth and call it all fun. It is not always fun to go through trials. Uh, heaven forbid you leave here thinking that you, because you are not enjoying the moment of the trial, or because you sometimes feel discouraged by them, that you are letting God down and you're not living up to the bill. Trials aren't supposed to be fun. What we are saying this morning is trials are supposed to be good so it's a perspective that we have, not an emotion that we have. And just as we try to figure out what trials are and where they come from, it's important also to try to figure out what joy is. Because as you study the Bible, you'll realize very quickly it's not a dictionary. It doesn't always define the terms exactly like Webster Merriam Dictionary would. The best way to really experience some of these godly experiences that he wants us to have in him is to think about how you've actually experienced them. And I find that to be the most hopeful way to, to figure out what this joy is that James is talking about. How have you already experienced joy? Well, the psalmist through King David says that there is joy in your salvation. So one of the reference points you have for joy isn't a working definition. It's actually a moment of your life. For those of you who went from darkness to light, from lost to found, there is a process by which you experience the joy of heaven coming over your soul. 
when you realize that you were loved by the God who made you and you were saved by the God who saved you apart from good works, but because he loves you because he loves you, there's a moment of great joy that is unmatched by anything else. That's why when Jesus describes salvation or redemption or repentance in Luke chapter 15, he gives three stories of great joy. He says, you know, when you lose something like a coin and you look everywhere and then you find it, that's awesome. That's an experience where you're like, ah, this is good. And I experience that all the time. I'm not a keys guy. I lose them all the time. And when I lose them, there's a moment where I want to be super frustrated and mad. But then there's also a moment when I find that I'm like, yeah, got you. I found you. And now I can start my car and I can leave here. And that's a great joy. And he gives an example of a sheep. And then he more importantly says, now, how much more, if you're excited about losing your keys and then finding them, how much more is God excited about a lost soul that has come home? He says, when that happens, there's more joy in heaven than 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Joy in salvation is experiential joy that becomes a reference point for your life. It's kind of like when you fall in love, the person you marry, and you don't always feel in love. God gives us this grace period. We call it the honeymoon period. We should just call it the, the pure love period when you have a reference point for how crazy in love you can be. You think about it all the time and you write poetry and you write songs and you just obsess over it and you, no one else makes sense, only one person. And that wanes, but then you have a moment to say, return to your first love. Remember what it was like then. Now you understand what love is. Remember what joy was like in salvation. That's the joy you are called to live in all the time. One of the reasons is because your salvation hasn't changed. Your trials does not, do not change the status of your salvation. There's another reference point to joy in Psalms chapter 16. Also very important for us to think about when we think about the command to live in the joy because the psalmist says there's the fullness of joy in the presence of God. Uh, another way we can experience joy beyond the working definition is to say, remember the times when you were so enriched by the presence of God, but you were, but you were overwhelmed with praise. You got on your knees with tears of joy in the worship of God. That is something that we try to live in as a discipline and a practice as a church when we sing his praises. What we're saying is, where two or more are gathered, God meets us with his presence. Let us be in his presence weekly minimum so that we have a reminder of the joy in the presence of the God that we serve. And again, one of the reasons we're called to joy that is not rooted in circumstance, because if joy is in salvation, that doesn't change. If joy is in the presence of God, that also is available to you regardless of the trying times of your life. And then Jesus says, for one more experiential joy, he says, I'm telling you these things, my teaching, my commandments, to love one another so that your joy may be full. John chapter 15. So the third way we can experience joy is by following Christ. This is a really important thing to remember, by the way, as you think through the worldview that you believe in, the tribe that you belong to, the people that you'll listen to as wise counsel for your life. Follow the joy. Matthew Henry says, we must serve a really good and kind God because he has made joy one of the top priorities of our experience. And that's not true in every tribe that you find. And it's not true of every God that people worship. But it's true of our God. 
It's true that he wants us to know his commandments and follow him in them so that we can experience the joy of the life that he has created for us. And these three joys are completely rooted in God and not the circumstances of your life. If you remember that truth, when you hear this command in contrast to the circumstances of your life, because you're going through a trial. So now we look at the three perspective-shaping aspects that James is going to offer us in just these two verses. He says this, brethren, count it all joy. Remember, the first way your perspective is shaped is in the way that you think, the way that you allow your thoughts to shape who you are. And James uses the word to count. If you have the New King James translation, he says, count it all joy. Have you ever tried to count while someone is talking to you? Very difficult. Have you ever seen someone counting and then say, I should throw some other numbers in there just to throw them off? That's very fun. But it does, it's not helpful. The reason that counting requires focus is because counting requires your mind. It requires you to, to think through the things that you're making an account of. And that's why I like the NIV translation here because he says, consider it all joy. Make a consideration for the possibility of the joy of the Lord in every situation. That's what he's saying. And you think about the word consider. What does it mean? Here's Tucker Mail's definition. It's to think before you choose. That's what it means to consider. You're considering a car to buy. You're considering a, a vacation to, to take. What you're doing is you're considering all of the things to think about before you choose what to go with. And James is saying, do that with joy. He is not saying Every believer needs to be so slain in the spirit that when they wake up out of bed, they're just like, no matter what, I don't have to think about it. It's so natural for me that I'm always smiling and I'm always singing. Rather, he's saying, when you go through trials, your instincts are probably to not be joyful, but think about it. Take some time to, as the Apostle Paul will say to the Romans, to renew your mind, no longer thinking how you view the lens of this situation, but what does God say about your situation? What would God's word, rightly applied to this situation, change the way you think about whether it's good or whether it's bad? And to me, this is one of the most important things that I can pass on to you for the study of James and really the knowledge of God in your life. I love that James says, as you go through this process, it'll actually teach you patience, which is impossible to think without patience. We live in a world where every little dispute or everything you could ever want to know is seemingly at your fingertips, and yet there are some deep understanding and wise things that require you to think and to meditate on them, and one of them is joy. One of the reasons you have a lack of joy is not because your emotions are haywire, it's because you haven't thought long enough. You haven't thought about the circumstances of your life with the view that God has instead of the view that you have. And this is why where the other parts of the Bible talk about the commandment of joy, they also talk about the practice of thinking. Philippians chapter 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, in all circumstances, in good times and in bad, in terrific times, and in trials, rejoice. And then Paul says again, in case you didn't hear it, again, I say rejoice. Double emphasis means really important in the Bible, to be joyful at all times. But how does Paul get them to this joy? He says, as he gives the command to rejoice always, finally, brethren, Philippians chapter 4, whatever things are true, 
in, un- in times of trials, you will feel like things are very uncertain. You will feel like there are things that you had planned that now you don't know what the plan is. You will feel like people you knew, you don't know anymore because they let you down or they hurt you. You will feel like certain things that you never saw coming are now making you ask the question, how did this happen to me? And in uncertain times, you cannot find joy apart from certain truth. And that's why Paul says, if you want to rejoice, you must find whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. If there is any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate. Think about it. Take all of the ways that your trial wants to point you towards pessimism or bitterness or despair or even a hard heart towards God. And Paul says, find the thing that is good. Find the truth that is not dependent on the shaky ground of the circumstances of your life. Find the foundation, the sure foundation of Christ and his word in unsure times. And where you find what is true, think about it all the time. And this is the divide. You will have one of two reactions to the tests of your life. I know that because I appreciate the literal word here, test. How many of you enjoyed taking tests in your educational experience? Just show of hands. There's, see, there's always a couple weirdos. There's always, (laughs) at all times, every class has the the kid who's like, when are we going to take a test? And I'm like, bro. Because you get two reactions in a test. You either get the reaction of fear because of uncertainty. I'm not ready. I don't know what to say. I'm not a great test taker. I get anxiety. I don't like waiting for the results. This is me. Or you have a reaction of great confidence because you know what you know. And this is the response that is happening in the tests of your life. You have two responses. You will either feel fearful because of the uncertainty or you will find joy in what you know. And what James is saying is, count it all joy, consider it joy, put every trial into the category of joy, and focus on all the things that you know to be true about the goodness of God, regardless of the changing circumstances of your life. There is a lesson that I learned in this, just the way that we have to reshape our thoughts so that we can actually celebrate what God has given us. In doing so, Looking at the bigger picture of life, my three-year-old daughter just got her tonsils out, which is a young age to get the tonsils out. Um, And it was kind of a challenge because at that age, it's very hard to look at the big picture of life. Your picture only has three years, and two of those years you don't remember. So her picture is very small anyway. And it was very interesting because I saw in this process of trying to walk her through for her life, maybe the biggest trial, the pain of having something removed from your throat as a lesson in rethinking the whole story. So she walks into the the hospital and it's kind of like a picture of God's goodness and initial blessing of our life, the joy of salvation that is just free and instant. Because when you're a three-year-old and you're going to get a surgery like that, they just shower you with gifts. They want to put you in a really good mood. So she's like, I got this coloring book and a stuffed animal. I got candy waiting for me. Her initial run-up to the surgery was so blessed that her sisters were like, man, can I get my tonsils out? (laughs) Because that looks like a good deal. (laughs) And yet, as you go down the road of a surgery, it's very similar to the road that, that Christ calls us to. Because there's joy in the salvation, 
And salvation is free, but discipleship costs you your whole life. It'll cost you your whole life. And we get an enhancement of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says that, you know, easy and broad leads to destruction. Difficult is the way that leads to life. And as soon as she came out of the surgery, she realized that she was now going through something that she couldn't trust me. In all of the ways I gave her gifts and experienced the blessing of the the run-up, now she's like, what have you done to my body? I don't trust you at all. And it was very challenging because the best thing that she could have done was to trust me when it was time to take her medicine. And yet she's like, who are you to give me all of this pain and then tell me how to get out of the problem that you created for me? And so, of course, in my flesh, my earthly fatherly uh, instinct was to pin her down and to take a syringe of medicine and then just jam it in her throat. And I tried that, actually, and she just spit it all out. It did not work. Because she hadn't rethought the situation. In her mind, medicine tastes gross, and she's in a lot of pain, and I've betrayed her trust. So I had to rethink my approach to her. And you know what I had to do? I had to talk to her, and I had to help her think about the entire process that she was going through. Think about the pain that she was in before the surgery. Think about the joy of not having to deal with all of the issues that were coming up because of the swollen tonsils. And to think about the immediate care I wanted to give her with the application of medicine. And it took a long time. But after a long while of her crying and then being calm and then listening, she changed her mind. And instead of seeing me as someone she couldn't trust, she saw me as someone who was helping her. And this, in many ways, is what God does to us in trials. He takes these little assumptions that we didn't even know were in there. Like, God is good if my life is good, or I can trust God if I can see what he's doing. And all of these ways that trials will break those assumptions, he's saying, now, you're going to learn to trust me in a way that you never have before. And you're going to see a part of the plan that you never saw before. So trials can be an an intense attack on the assumptions of your life, but they will be replaced with an intense trust in the God of your life. So we have to rethink the way that we view it. Here's what Matthew Henry says. He says, all of our joy must terminate in God. And our thoughts of God must be delightful thoughts. It is our duty and privilege to rejoice in God and to rejoice in him always at all times in all conditions. There is enough in God to furnish us with the matter of joy in the worst circumstances on earth. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. If you have not a continual feast in the goodness of God, you are not thinking of him enough. You catch that last part? If you are not enjoying the continual feast of the goodness of God, you have not thought of him enough. God is good. All of the ways he wants us to experience joy are rooted in him and not our circumstances. And trials teach us how to rethink the world that we live in to put Christ more and more and more at the center. The other thing that James will now give us in a perspective-shaping way is he says that we should consider all things joy, every circumstance now in the category of potential joy. And then he says, when you fall into various trials, the NIV again is helpful here because it says when you face them. And isn't that the truth of trials? 
is no matter what is going on before it strikes, before the headlines come down the way, you've got a view on all of these other things in your life, but as soon as it hits, as soon as your heart breaks or your plans uh, fall apart or the things you were expecting become uh, disappointments, there is this focus on your life and it's all you can see. And James says, we must look at them and we must face them with joy, which in the perspective shaping command that we're looking at this morning is to say this, how are your trials being looked at through the lens of the gospel? How are you viewing these circumstances that you fell into by surprise, unwanted, unplanned? But how can you face them? How can you look at them in ways that you normally wouldn't? How can you not only shift your thoughts, but in your shifting your thoughts, you now are going to shift what you're allowing God to show you about the circumstances of your life. That's why it's helpful to always remember we live not by sight, but by faith. And what is the lens of faith telling you about the circumstances of your life? Another very challenging thing to think about, but I find it interesting in another translation of this, it's the Phillips translation. It's one of those plain language translations of the Bible. I find them helpful sometimes when there's so much to meditate on that every word becomes a question in my mind. So I've been looking through all these translations. One of them is called the Phillips, and this is what it says. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. When trials come into your life, your gut reaction might be to say, you're not invited, I don't want you here, and I will never have a relationship with you. Philip says, don't treat them as intruders. Look at them as friends. And so much of your life, so much of the way that you apply the goodness of God to your life with hope and joy and wisdom has to do with how you're seeing the world unfold before you. And usually, in God's sovereignty... You're right about something. Whether you're seeing the world through pessimism or hope, you're probably going to find some things that you can plant a flag of facts upon. And this is why we as believers must be willing to allow God to shape what we see so that we have his eyes and not our own. Uh, A helpful story, at least for me. Take it if you want. Uh, I like it because it has to do with a growing city, with a city that, that people are interested in moving to. So it reminds me of Austin, Texas. Actually, it reminds me of Boise. I'm just kidding. Reminds me of our city because how many people every week do I meet? They're like, well, we're just visiting, but we like what we see. We're going to check it out. So this story is about a woman who works at a welcome center or a visitor center in a city. And a man comes in and says, hey, I'm looking to move here. Can you tell me about the people? I'd like to know about the people that live here. And she says, well, where you come from? What are the people like where you come from? And he says, well, that's one of the reasons I'm leaving, in fact, because uh, where I come from, everybody's like super politically divided, and, and everybody's just crazy drivers. They all cut each other off, and you, you stand in line, and everybody's just got folded arms, and, and uh, they look at you crossed, and, and no one's very friendly or loving. So I'm trying to get out of there, and I'm wondering if it'll be any better here, and she says, you know, unfortunately, everybody's like that here, too, and he's like, bummer, and then a second person comes in and says, I'm thinking about moving here. Tell me about the city. What are the people like, and she says, well, tell me about the place you came from, and she's like, hey, it's going to be tough to beat, because where I come from, everyone's loving, and they're kind, and they're patient, 
And, you know, everybody's got their faults, but I, I trust that people are in good faith doing their best. The traffic is kind. People let each other in. The grocery store, people give directions to where everything is on the shelf. And she says, you are going to fit right in because it is exactly like that here too. And it's a lesson in the perspective that you have in life. And I've actually found that to be true in the way that we can actually see that living parable literally played out. You want to have people that are kind and loving as neighbors, and you want to have friends that are really kind and, and enjoy your company, you should try it sometime. <laughs> it'll work. And it'll also be true. As you leave this place and you think, well, this, this, this church is crazy, these people are crazy, and Costco is crazy, you'll probably be right. <laughs> There's not a lot of things that your perspective doesn't take shape in reaping and sowing. And so what James is saying is face it with joy. Look at it all and say, I'm going to look at it, even if it's just a sliver. When I find the joy, I'm going to think about it until it grows, and then I'm going to see it until God shows me all the things that he sees. Because when we talk about studying the life of Jesus to apply it to our lives and following Jesus, we realize that Jesus, one of his great gifts to all of his disciples, is the ability to see things altogether different. Jesus was always confounding the people of his day because they had assumptions that Jesus could see through and he lived out a completely different perspective than what people were expecting. That's why he got in so much trouble for hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners because the people of his day saw them as trials waiting to happen and Jesus saw them as people who were willing to receive him and eat with him and listen to his teaching and repent. And Jesus saw in the days of Jesus, people saw lepers and people who were sick and unclean as trials waiting to happen. Keep them at a distance. Don't go near them. Put them in their own little special spot. And if we could just remove them from our community, we'll be, have a better shot at being clean for, our, clean for ourselves. And Jesus said, actually, I'm going to heal them. I'm going to clean them. I'm going to restore their good standing into the community. There's an example, actually, in John chapter 9, where Jesus is walking through town, and as he's going through, a blind man cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And his disciples are like, Oh, Jesus, great and wise teacher, will you tell us whose sin made him blind? Was it him or his parents? That's the perspective. Like, how can you, how can you blame that, on, that trial on the practical way that this man is just distant from you, Lord? And, and what does Jesus say? It wasn't his parents, and it wasn't him. He was born this way that the glory of God would be revealed in him. So that when Jesus takes this man from blind to sight, God's glory would be revealed. And he sees the same thing in your trial. It's, you don't have to ask the question of, where did I sin? Where did I mess up? Some of your trials are a, a direct response to you messing up. But that's not the point of the trial. The point of the trial is that the glory of God would be revealed when ashes get turned into beauty, when broken hearts are healed, when addicted people are set free, when lost people are found. The trial is there for the glory of God, not for the, the proof of who the sinners are. Jesus had an entirely different perspective, and it's one that we have to be revived in as the people of God when we look out and we see trials waiting to happen because of sinners on the outside. I think of Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus says, is going from city to city, itinerant preaching and healing. And it says, when he looks out on the masses, what does he see? He sees the first read of it, what we see. 
These people are like sheep without a shepherd. And so we read that, and it's like, scatter on, guys, because we're trying to be unified, and we're trying to represent the lights and the dark. And for all you scattered people, then you should probably figure out your life because it's not a good look on the people of God. But what does Jesus see? It says Jesus had compassion on them. And he said to his disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest. There's a great harvest where we see scattered, where we see broken, where we see a world that seems dark, where we see headlines that seem despairing. God sees harvest. God sees revival. And so now the question of what you see in the times that we live in. Do you see a bunch of people cutting you off on the freeway and moving in to ruin your beautiful city and ruin your beautiful country and there's no hope on the horizon. If only we could go backwards, we'd be better. Because if that's your take, you're never going to have the joy of the Lord until you realize that it's only when you look forward that you see the full potential of what James is saying, that there is a wholeness and there is a completeness on the horizon, not behind you. The best times for the church were not in the book of Acts. The best times for the church are still unfolding before us, and God is using his people now to prepare that. And that's true of the best times of your life. So often trials make us wish we could just go back to before it happened. But what we see in the example of Christ and in the, the commandment of James is to look at it all, not as a reason to despair, but to be so hopeful that God is doing something through the trial to get us a little bit closer to the plan. But it all depends on what you see. Finally, it's, James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Your perspective, your joyful perspective will be shaped by how you think, how you see, and what you actually believe. What you actually believe is, is it's, it's like the gospel is always good news in the midst of bad news. What you actually believe, you really don't know right now. You, you may like the way this sermon sounds. You may like the way this verse reads on a memory wall. But the best way to know what you believe is to find out what you do when things get really hard. The best way to see your foundation that you stand on is not when it's peaceable and the weather is perfect, 75 degrees and a beautiful breeze. The foundations look the same until the storm comes. And what you believe will define how you respond. And James is saying to the believers, here's what you already know. This sermon is not to convince the believers of some new piece of information that some apostles have and some people need to learn. This is part of the power of the Holy Spirit in you to know what you believe about God. And one of the primary things that you need to know about God is that his goodness is alive and well in all seasons of your life. One of the things that you have to know is that trials are not without purpose. That's why wherever you find in the New Testament the encouragement to remain joyful and hopeful in times of trial, you'll often find a statement that says, here's what we know. 
In uncertain times, we must stand on the certainty of unwavering truth. And nothing in your Christian experience has changed the truth of God. And here's one truth to cling to in the midst of a trial. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Other translations say perseverance. It is through the trial that you learn what's on the other side to be strengthened by the goodness of God. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. So good news and bad news. Some of the bad news that we need to be a a constant reminder of is no matter how far down the road in following Jesus you are, no matter how long you've been faithful in Christ, you are not yet completed. There will still be things that God uses on this side of eternity to shape you and to conform you into the perfect image of his son, which is the goal. The goal is not a perfect church. The goal is not a a perfect sermon experience. The goal is not that you'd have a perfect family. All of those things we hope for and we trust God to work out. But the goal of your life in Christ is that you would be conformed to the perfection of Christ in you, which is going to happen. And it's trials and it's tests that get us there. You know, they say all good preaching is Christ-centered preaching. So if you're looking for a a good way to measure a sermon as as you look for a church to belong to, maybe visiting, did they preach Christ? Did the sermon bring you closer to the image of Christ, the picture of Christ that we're all supposed to be looking at as the entire goal of our entire Christian life. And in this passage of scripture, we have the gospel full display of Christ given to us. Because it says, we know that trials produce patience unto the completion of the work. This is the visible image of the invisible God with the picture of the cross. Suffering is somehow good in the design and the economy of God. And if you ever doubt it, when you doubt it, look to the cross. As Amber said, your circumstances do not define the love of God in your life. The cross does. And in the picture of the cross, we have a perspective that is shaped by thinking, a perspective that is shaped by seeing, and a perspective that is shaped by by believing. Because on first glance, the cross is not something that you think of as good. The cross is an instrument of death, mind you. And as you study the people who are viewing the cross on this side of the grave, they looked at it as an absolute foolish plan. The chief disciple, Peter, as he hears the message that Jesus, his mission was to die, to give his life ransom for many by dying on the cross for the sins of humanity. He says, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be turned over, beat, scourged, and put to death. And Peter says, no, I'm not, that's not how I think. That's not how I think the Messiah and salvation should happen. And the cross certainly shapes the way you see, doesn't it? It says in Hebrews chapter 12 that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the shame of the cross. He despised all of the ridicule because he had a view of the joy of salvation that he was winning for all of us. He saw the cross totally different than Peter did. And the cross 
does define what you believe about Jesus. As much as we wish the joy of salvation was an initial, durable, permanent thing in our life, salvation is free, but following Christ costs you your life. And we know that because he says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, you better pick up your cross and follow me. And I say it all the time, but I probably don't say it enough. If you follow Christ, the cross will find you. The trial that brings suffering to your life and sometimes confusion to your soul until God gives you the things that he sees and the wisdom that he has for you. He gives us the mission of the cross. And if the cross has not found you, you're probably not following Christ. The cross is foolishness for those who are perishing. The outside world looks in and says, you guys have put all of your hope on one person dying a death on your behalf and raising from the grave. Foolishness. And yet it says in 1 Corinthians that the cross is the power to save for those of us who believe. Do you want a constant anchor of truth and a foundation for every storm? Cling to the cross. It reshapes your thoughts about how much God loves you. While you were still sinners, he died on the cross. It reshapes your view of all of the suffering of this world because it says that light and momentary affliction will be far outweighed by the glory of heaven, and we have access to that glory because of the cross. And it reshapes what we believe, going from a a, a theology or a religion that says, man, if I can just clean up my life and improve myself, if there's a God out there or a force, I'll have more good than bad, and I'll, I'll be ushered into whatever the afterlife is. And we say, change what you believe. It is the cross of Christ. It is enough. It is sufficient. And without it, there is no hope for life. It is the cross of Christ. And maybe all good preaching is Christ-centered because all good living is Christ-centered. Jesus loved you enough to take on the trial of the wrath of God upon his cross so that he could win in victory a salvation, a reward for you that would become your greatest joy, the joy of your salvation. So may we rethink the world that we live in the day that God has given you. The psalmist says, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and I will be glad in it today because there is nothing that this world will throw at you today or the fallen people who let you down today or even your own mistakes today. There is nothing that this day will do to shake the reality that you can rejoice in the goodness of God. If you forget Look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of the faith. And next week, we're going to look at this simple question that maybe all of you are asking. What if I don't really see it? What if my perspective doesn't change? What if I'm listening, but I I leave here and I still feel like I don't have a change of thoughts or a change of sight or a change of how I approach this situation? Well, next week, we'll look at this simple thing. If any of you lack wisdom, ask and God will give it to you. This week, we're going to end with a song that says, Lord, I need you. There is no joy in the trial of your life apart from the joy of the Lord as your strength. So I hope if you're a believer, you'll sing this song, and you'll apply your own version of the trials of your life to this song, 
whether it's the despair of the world or your life or the people around you. And before we sing the song, I'll leave you with one quote. And I'll, I always wonder when it's too early to do a Christmas quote. Is Costco doing trees yet? Anyone know? Hey, they can set the bar. So one of my favorite Christmas songs is a song called Joy to the World. And when you really think about what it's saying, how could you not experience joy that the Son of God would be incarnate into our life to dwell among us, not in a palace, but in a manger? We no longer have to think of working our way to God, but God has come to us in the lowliest of forms, so anyone who is humble and seeking would find salvation in his name. That's the joy of what we celebrate for that day where he made himself known as Jesus Christ, the visible image. But did you know that the writer of that song also has some great hope for the coming day? It was Isaac Watt who wrote Joy to the World, and I want to share with you as we finish one encouraging thing that he also says about what we're waiting for still. How divinely full of glory and pleasure shall that hour be when all the millions of mankind that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God shall meet together and stand around him with every tongue and every heart full of joy and praise. How astonishing will be the glory and the joy of that day when all the saints shall join together in one common song of gratitude and love and of everlasting thankfulness to this Redeemer with that unknown delight and inexpressible satisfaction shall all that are saved from the ruins of sin and hell address the Lamb that was slain and rejoice in His presence. That's what we're waiting for. Amen? Anything that happens in your life to give you a better picture of that day is a good thing.